Welcome to UNGA Decoded. I'm Michael Igo, senior reporter at DevX. In this podcast series, we bring you inside the biggest global development gathering of the year, the UN General Assembly. Skip the travel, the traffic, and the security lines, and join us for candid conversations with people at the leading edge of global development, global health, and humanitarian assistance. This is UNGA Decoded. If there are nine out of 10 children in low-income countries today who cannot read a single sentence at 10 years old, very quickly, every one of those children is 12, 13, 15, 18, and then you have a population that's not productively able to support themselves, their family, to be in the workforce. The world is in the midst of a learning crisis. Even before the COVID-19 pandemic, more than half of kids in low- and middle-income countries were living in what the World Bank calls learning poverty. Now, in the wake of school closures and remote learning, that number could spike to 70%, with huge implications for the opportunities available to kids for the rest of their lives and for the global economy. Leaders and educators are still looking for a way out of this problem. The Transforming Education Summit during UNGA was supposed to be part of that solution, but reviews have been mixed. For years, one organization that's been stirring up a bit of controversy on the education front is New Globe, previously better known as Bridge International Academies. The company is known for offering for-profit education in a handful of countries, and is now shifting to work more directly with governments. DevX Editor-in-Chief Raj Kumar sat down with Shannon May, one of New Globe's co-founders, who said their critics have sometimes failed to appreciate what the organization brings to the table. Here's their conversation. You've been in this space a long time. I think Bridge first started 2006, if I remember. 2009 was um, the first school that enrolled 99 children in kindergarten through grade two. Okay, and I think the last time you and I met was years ago now, and a lot of things have changed, your name, your business model, so we want to get into all that, but I'd just love to get your perspective on the broader global ed space and where you think it is now, what you think TESS accomplished or didn't accomplish, or what do you see as the, the narrative coming out of, the, of this moment, this, this UN General Assembly? I think it is special that it's the first time that education has been on the formal UN agenda. Mm -hmm. In some ways, it's remarkable that it hasn't been before. I hope it won't be the last time. We'll see what actually comes out of it. But coming into it, this kind of coalescence around uh, what's now being called the commitment to action of trying to get multiple uh, big aid funders, multiple delivery organizations, multiple government representatives to sign up to commit to what's being called foundational learning there hasn't really been a rallying cry or something that kind of across education that people across different spheres could kind of come, come around, right? It's, it's always, I think, been harder in education than it has been in health. The metrics aren't as easily, uh, well, they might be easily defined, but not everyone agrees with which ones to use, right? When you talk about mortality and morbidity, mm -hmm. that kind of makes things understandable across populations, across countries. It makes it very visceral to people, and I think education's lacked some of that coherence and a coherent narrative that can bring enough people together to say, if we work on this, this aspect together, you know, can we actually move the needle? 
including funders, by the way, right? I mean, I talk to lots of people in global education who are very jealous of the global health space and all of the private philanthropy, including from the Gates Foundation, present there. There doesn't seem to be that level of philanthropic effort behind the global education space. There are a number of foundations involved doing a lot of things, but the scale of the funding is just nowhere near global health. There are a lot of people who think education impact is difficult to measure. And I think sometimes the field does itself a disservice uh, when it says, hey, part of the problem is it just takes so long to see impact, you know, that we need incredibly patient um, philanthropic or aid or government funding. You have to give us time. And I think if it, when you're trying to capture people's attention and part of the messaging is, you know, in a low-income country, nine out of ten children can't read a simple sentence, it feels like if that's going to take a long time to solve, maybe I should put my money elsewhere. Like it feels almost unsolvable. Yeah. And so I think as a field, by not trying to say and to force ourselves to figure out how to do things in a period of time that's relevant for a donor or an aid partner and really for that child, you know, maybe we're not putting forward the right plans to get funded. And I, mean, I, I think you, that time issue is a big issue. You succeeded somehow in raising an eye-popping amount of money back in the day. I don't know where you are now, we can get into that, but you raised an enormous sum. I forget the, the total amount, but hundreds of millions, right? How, how do I you think we you... have succeeded in trying to get capital to understand the value of investing in education mm -hmm. and that you do have to invest in it. And I, I think that's something that, you know, in the health space, everyone sees the value of investing money into R&D into developing new drugs, new vaccines, into doing the research on what works and what doesn't work, and how important that is, and that the companies that invest in that, you know, they need to pull capital to be able to do that research, and then to be able to create a return so that money continues to flow to that sector, so that that sector continues you know, advancing science to benefit humanity. In education, sometimes it seems people forget that it is also a science, a learning science. What are the ways that need to be developed to support this child to learn across this subject in this space, to best support this teacher to do her best practice? What technology needs to be developed to make all of that visible to the ministry who's trying to run, you know, <laughs> you know, like in, you know, in a place like Uttar Pradesh, you know, that's like 60,000 schools across the state. Mm -hmm. You know, it takes investment in systems and technology, which takes money. And so we always came at it from the point of view of to support thousands, tens of thousands of distributed schools, millions of distributed children, you have to invest in creating new, new, new things. Um, so we were able to raise money to back that, to get us from where we were back in 2008 when we first started in 2009 in the first school uh, to now. Now we're, we're working with more than 1.2 million children every school day across multiple countries. Yeah, I want to talk about that transition. I, I do think one of the differences with global health is that global health has its share of controversy. You know, issues like IP around medication and vaccines, but global education is highly controversial. I mean, the, the, the main way people will know your group, maybe not by the new name, uh, New Globe, but by the old name Bridge, is the controversy it generated. And it seems like it's a pretty fundamental controversy about should low-cost private education exist in many markets? Is that a model that makes sense? So it gets to kind of a very fundamental question. In global health, as you say, there, there's some more agreed-upon general metrics and 
And while there are controversies, they don't seem to be at the center of the global health endeavor. This seems to be right at the center. And you've dealt with that very directly. Is that ultimately partly why you changed your model and changed your name? Is that why this transition has happened? That give, give us the backstory yeah. of that. Well, so New Globe is actually not a new name, just to maybe start from the background. Okay. It's actually always been the name of the US entity. And Bridge was its first program. So like all of our um, supporters, our shareholders, they've always been shareholders in New Globe. The decision we made in, we started thinking about it in 2018. It, we started thinking about it a bit more in 2019. And in some ways, uh, you know, all of the issues of the pandemic in 2020 gave us a little bit more time to decide to do it and put the pieces in place. Was that Bridge was always designed as a program to ensure every child can fulfill their human right to access a transforming education and to work with parents to get that done. All of the technology and the systems we developed for Bridge are part of the New Globe platform. As we started getting invited by governments to serve them, where we would have government officials from various countries come and visit the work that we were doing in Kenya, and, and then later in Lagos, and say, if you can do this in, this in these communities, these are the same communities that our children who are going to government schools are in, this means my government schools could be better. You know, and our answer universally was, of course. Of course. Your teachers need more support. Your school leaders need more support. We need to think a lot about school management practice. Let's review your materials. Let's, let's dig in and see. Whatever we do here, because we designed it to be affordable for parents, is far below your budget. It is far below what you spend today. You could do any and all of this tomorrow if you chose to. And that was really the origin of governments starting to come to us, uh, first in Liberia, then multiple states in Nigeria. Uh, we're now able to support uh, really great leadership in Rwanda, um, in northern India now, where we partner with the government who contracts with us to, to bring everything we're able to do in Bridge in the service of parents and children and supporting teachers into their government systems with their current civil service teachers with all of their current systems and then work with them on you know, how to bring these systems to bear to better support learning. And so the Just so people are aware, your original model was much more private sector oriented, right? You went to parents and said something like $5 per month, I think, to enroll a child in your program. I'm, I'm sure it varied by country. Yeah, but. it's usually between 70 and $100 per child per school year. Per school year, right. So you, you went to parents who could afford that, which would be people at the low end of the income scale, maybe not the lowest. Um, they could send their kids to the school. And I guess a lot of the challenges you faced were teachers' unions, people who said you're kind of undermining the public education system. Now you're, it sounds like, taking a different tack, which is the government's the payer, not the individual parent, right? But is it, is it basically the same program now, just inside the government-run school? So whereas in the past you might have used, or maybe even some existing bridge schools, um, teachers who were not certified teachers or people who weren't part of the, the traditional education system, now you are using them because they're part of the civil service if it's government-run schools, are using the same curriculum, the same ba basic method and approach. Yeah, I think one of the things that was always, I think, here, you know, sitting from New York or D.C., misunderstood about uh, the importance of Bridge and what Bridge was doing is that very different from the experience of an American or someone who's living in the U.K. or living in Paris, affordable community schools or private schools, whatever they might be called, are the dominant provider of education in most of sub-Saharan Africa's urban cities. 
and even in some of its towns and villages that there's a problem of there both being not enough government service provision, like truly just not enough physical government-funded schools to serve the children in need. And unfortunately, in many places, uh, the service offered in them is so failing children that if a parent even has a tiny amount of income, someone who is you know, working selling tomatoes on the street will try to find a school that is going to help their child learn more if they can, mm -hmm. as any parent would. Sure. Right? You know, that was what many parents experienced during COVID when suddenly they realized how important education service provision is, not only to their child, but to their own family, their ability to work, their own ch their child's social emotional development. And in these spaces where Bridge started, we didn't create a model of a, like we, we were not the, how to put it, the the originators of the idea that families are desperately looking for a school that'll actually help their child learn. Mm -hmm. That already existed. There are tens of thousands of those schools in Kenya. There are more than 20,000 of those types of schools in Lagos alone. Mm -hmm. The issue is often that still they don't have enough support or enough standardization and systems to ensure that across the board they're providing, they're providing the education they should be. Kate Warren, Executive Editor at DevEx. If you are listening to this podcast, you are likely working to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals. But are you subscribed to DevEx Newswire? Global development can be a fast-moving, complex sector. Our team of global reporters work every day to bring you the news you need to make sense of it all. In DevEx Newswire, we keep you up to date on issues ranging from climate change financing to gender equality and global health to transforming the food system all in a fun-to-read, free newsletter delivered directly to you five days a week. Join the hundreds of thousands of global development professionals who receive DevEx Newswire and visit devex.com newsletters to sign up to this free newsletter today. You brought a different business model to a market that already exists, right? You brought like a technology startup mindset raised a lot of money, said we're going to like have a standard approach across thousands. Ultimately, how many schools did you at one point have? And how many kids were in them? Yeah, more than 400. I mean, right. 450 or so, that is, that 100,000 kids. I mean, yeah, that was... and, and so I think, I think the thing that was confusing, you know, for well-intentioned people concerned about the education space, thinking about what we were doing, is in their mind, and I get where this is coming from. In their mind, they think it's wrong that a parent should quote unquote have to pay right. for basic education. And I think though, and I agree with that, but what they're missing is what if what if what is currently supposedly free is no education at all? Right. And so if you're sitting in Paris or in London and DC and saying these schools shouldn't exist, you're actually denying that mother the opportunity to use the money she has in the way that she thinks is best for her children. And I, I just always found that confusing. But it sounds like you've now made quite a business model shift, right? Now you're going to governments. But so is, is this kind of a, a fundamental shift where you, you will now be bringing this model that you piloted with Bridge to you know, these government-run schools as your primary way of working, or will you also be trying to expand the number of bridge schools too? What's the, where are you as a, as a business? 
as a business, our focus has always been urgency, mm -hmm. scale, and effectiveness, right? Like if there are nine out of 10 children in low-income countries today who cannot read a single sentence at 10 years old, very quickly, every one of those children is 12, 13, 15, 18, and then you have a population that's not productively able to support themselves, their family, to be in the workforce. It creates a, a generation that is left behind. So for us, it was always how fast can you actually productively solve this problem? How can you do this at scale? One school does not solve this problem. A hundred schools don't solve this problem. You have to be working across a significant enough of the population at scale that if then all of those children benefit from a truly transformational basic education, the next generation will be different. You know, they will have different access, different uh, leadership in the economy, different ways that they might choose to vote or lead their own countries. When we started Bridge, there weren't, at the time, uh, governments that we were able to engage with across sub-Saharan Africa who were, who were as open to discussing what now the World Bank calls learning poverty. It wasn't an issue that was at the forefront. That's part of why we started working for parents directly. It was parents who went through COVID. It's like you need to solve the education problem for your family. Everyone now really understands that. And so we were working for parents who need someone to support them to create strong community schools. But our intention was never about supporting private schools for private school's sake. It was that was the only pathway to ensure that we could start working to change this, this travesty of learning poverty. When government started coming to us and saying, if you could do it there, why can't you do it here? We said, we will serve you and we will work for you if that is what you want. We weren't beholden to one side or the other. It's why we always found it confusing when people would try to discuss this public versus private rather than understanding, again, much like how health has kind of moved beyond this sort of narrative into it's really an integrated ecosystem. How can you deploy all players? How can you deploy everyone in the ecosystem to achieve the best results for all? And now we're, I mean, incredibly privileged to be able to use the things we've developed over the past decade in the service of visionary leaders and governments who have taken a look at their education systems and said, hey, I, I think we could be doing more. You know, like it, it shouldn't be that a child who's in sixth grade in Edo uh, is only reading 11 words per minute. That's not reading. But that child's been in school for six years. And so when a, when a governor or a president is willing to look at that sort of data in their own system and say, hey, I'm spending a lot of my budget on education, yet the outcomes aren't where they could and should be. And so I'm willing to look at what support I can get, like what technical support, what advice I, can, I could deploy to change that. That's where we want to be. So, so that sounds like a full transition then. If it's, I, I it's fat, well, it's same mission, same goal. But a different business model. You're getting out of the retail if I'm understanding We're not out of it. I mean, we, Bridge is really important. Bridge is serving, you know, tens of thousands of families across uh, in Lagos, across Kenya, Uganda, and Andhra Pradesh in southern India. We'll continue to do that. Uh, we don't want to leave those families without the choices that have really helped them. At the, and at the same time, where we have a little bit more flexibility, a longer day, you know, we can test certain things in a different way around really treating learning as a science, innovating on pedagogical approaches, 
you know, the minutiae of timetabling, all of these things. That's interesting. So you're we, saying the advantage of having the privately run school paid for by parents is you get to decide. You could say, hey, we're keeping the kids a little bit longer. We're going to have yeah, a longer school day. We're going to have more school days. Whereas if it's a government-run program that you're serving, you don't have that kind of flexibility. So no, you maybe we, not, can't we, experiment as we, much. We serve at the, the pleasure of the government within like the, the constraints of their current civil service rules, their right. current like uh, you know, contracted length of day. Um, there are all sorts of things that are you know, design questions that you know, when we are engaged in a contract like that, we have to look at and make sure all of these different very local needs, local pieces um, are considered. And then we think through how to redeploy everything we know, all of the learning science we have to serve that government's agenda. So how does it actually work? I'm just imagining a, a minister of education listening to this discussion and, and being interested in it. Are you kind of taking, is it like a full outsourcing of the school to New Globe and you are responsible for the physical plant of the school? You're responsible for the teacher training, you're, like everything? Or is it more like your consultants coming in with, here's the curriculum, here's an e-reader, you train the current teachers? What, what level of engagement are we talking about? I think we call it like comprehensive technical support. Like we're not the employer. We're not in charge of the facilities. We're there to ensure that learning happens. And, you know, here at, at the Transforming Education Summit, there's been a lot of talk about paying for results, having outcomes-based funding, having more people care about outcomes rather than inputs. We've done that from the beginning. And in every one of uh, the governments that we serve, we're very clear that the only, we're very clear as, a, as an agreement between us that the way our performance is measured is by whether learning increases. You know, on the assessments that they choose, whatever their national assessments are, whatever their state assessments are, that like whether we have delivered against our service is, is learning demonstrably and significantly better. Is that part of your contract? Like you get paid more if learning is learning outcomes are better and paid less if they're not? Is a pay-for-performance kind of model, or how does it work? It's not explicitly pay-for-performance, but we'd accept a contract like that. But they're, it's, they're defined in that way, that essentially our delivery is that, and if we don't deliver that, contracts can be terminated. Um, and we think that's really important, that like everyone is aligned to what is the point of doing anything in education. It's not to deliver books. It's not to train teachers just for te training teachers' sake. It is to ensure that children are actually learning the curriculum that the state has put forward. And so we're always working within, you know, what are, what are the curriculum objectives that this state or this nation has put forward, how to ensure children learn what this government has defined, and to ensure that they will be successful within this landscape. Um, and that's exciting to work that way and to make sure it's supportive of them. Is it sustainable as a business? You know, I know you're a mission-driven organization, but you are a business. Can you make a profit doing this at the end of the day? Like, can governments afford to pay you enough that you can scale and go to the next state and the next state? Like in Nigeria, uh, World Bank data shows that the average government is spending approximately two hundred and fifty dollars per child per year. You know, we can we work at you know, depending on what they want us to do. You know, at a tenth of that. Uh, you know, so it's. Because you're, but you're layered on top of their existing cost structure, right? Not I mean, really. So, like almost everything we do is replacement. So, if the government is currently um, has a teacher training budget, right? We're working. We work within that. Um, if a government currently has 
uh, a supplementary materials budget. We're working within that. Like the area where often governments haven't already budgeted for certain services that are often then it's like okay how does this fit into your budget how could how could this work out is like the role of technology in education is often mm, not budgeted for or misunderstood so like even here at, at, at TES a lot of people are talking about ed tech and the importance of ed tech mm -hmm. but often that way ed tech is thought of is like what is the device or the software in a child's hands and the thing that's often very under theorized and underdeveloped and under budgeted is what are essentially like you know like the ERP of education like the the back office systems that are needed in order to make what's happening in this classroom across this school visible up through all of the different levels of government so that they can make informed data-driven decisions a lot of our new work that we've had to add on is really building in these systems to help ministers understand those core practices. Where are my teachers? Where are my pupils? What's the enrollment? Helping them measure that daily through digital methods, giving them that information, which then they may choose to do things that are outside of the purview of our service, but are, you know, how might they then redistribute teachers? How might they then think about where they actually need to build new schools? Because they actually now have accurate data of enrollment and which schools are quote unquote overpopulated given their physical infrastructure. We're not gonna build the schools, but we give the government the information that allows them to make informed decisions. You've been doing this how many years now? 15. 15 years. Yeah. How does it feel at this point? I mean, you've gone through a lot as an organization, as I've alluded to, a lot of controversy. Um, how does it feel personally at this stage? I think it feels great. I mean, so the one of the things that was really a really proud moment was earlier this year when uh, Michael Kramer released his uh, randomized control trial on the work that we had been doing um, in Bridge in Kenya. It was many years um, in the making. And when that finally came out and showed uh, like the largest ever measured gains in learning, I cried. I mean, because it just was so, working in education is not easy. Um, and th that study does get back a little to your earlier point, because if I remember right from this, students were in school a lot longer. They got a lot more learning hours in because you could do that in your in your program. It'd be interesting to go back. I don't remember off the top of my head. It's definitely more, but it was something less than you would have thought. It was less than I would have thought, to be honest. It was in the matter of like a day or eight hours or like there was a difference. Mm -hmm. But it was less than I even I would have thought. And that's why, I mean, in the paper, it's pretty clear that, you know, the reason to do a randomized control trial is to try to take out all of these other possible externalities, to try to remove all of the other possible pieces of noise, I mean, like what's driving this learning. And, you know, Professor Kramer and all of his colleagues, it's like the language that they came around to, which I actually hadn't really even used myself. But then in hearing them speak about it, I was like, I think that is probably a good way of understanding this is that it's, it's standardization. It's creating standards and standards not just for teacher guides, right, for lesson support materials you provide for a teacher, but standards for a school leader and, you know, how they should approach observing a teacher, how they should approach coaching a teacher, even standards around a school leader's weekly template of how do they think about how to spend their the time in their day. And then even a level above where you know, whether it's your district education officer or for us, we were calling them school supervisors, standardizing their approach to school visits, right? So making sure you're providing consistency through all those different channels of governance 
Well, it is always great to talk to you. And I know there's a lot of interest in hearing what's happening at now New Globe. Uh, thank you for sharing the, a little bit about the journey and updating all of us on it. And let's keep the conversation going. Enjoy the rest of this UN General Assembly week. Most definitely. Thanks for having me, Raj. Thanks for listening to Unga Decoded. If you enjoyed today's episode, please do share it with friends, family, and colleagues. And you can also leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. If you've been to Unga and have some thoughts, or if you just want to share some feedback on this episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on social media at DevX and at AlterIgo. Thank you.